The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Proverbs. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 and 11 through 15. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life, and peace they will add to you. Let, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we are at the front end of a sermon series about wisdom. We're in the book of Proverbs, um, and, and this is coming to us, just coming off of a series that we were in earlier called A Church for the City, and I, I think these two pair nicely together because the last thing that the Quad Cities needs is more foolishness, right? It's the last thing. Foolishness violates God's created order. It gums up the gears of life, and in the wake of foolishness, is brokenness, catastrophe, and confusion. But thankfully, God doesn't leave us in the ruins of what could have been. He's given us his word. He's given us his spirit to know, to understand, to be able to navigate. And the book of Proverbs is one of the books of the Bible that we go to. It's like the goo-gon of our life, right? It de-stickies the gummed-up works. And so we are in the book of Proverbs to study. And what we're seeing here as we go through, what I hope you're seeing is that wisdom has restorative properties. Wisdom has the ability to beautify the lives that it's active in, and it reclaims and reorders what was broken or what was. And so in this sense, what our city needs most is not more moralistic people. What our city needs is the life-giving presence of more wise people. But the question is, what makes someone wise, right? What are the qualities of a wise person? Now, certainly you know it's more than gray hair. It is, Uh, though it's an advantage. Uh, It's more than having good morals. It's more than having brains and having an understanding of certain things and how they work. Wisdom is the trifecta of deep character, straight thinking, and skilled execution. You can actually see this in Proverbs verse three. You see the three things at work. Don't forget my teaching. So, so what that instruction is, the straight thinking. You can see it in keeping my commands, right? The hands that are acting upon what you know and the heart that keeps the commands. So you see, wisdom is the merging of deep character, straight thinking, and skilled execution. What I mean by that, what, what exactly am I talking about when I say deep character? Well, deep character is the ability to be anchored and resolute in in what is right, what is good and right when the situations are compromised. 
Straight thinking is the ability to conform to reality, not to try to get reality to conform to your own version of the world. And skilled execution means that you are a practitioner of wisdom. Not not only do you know or are you wise in the sense of you know what you ought to do, you have the ability to act on it, to to do, to navigate life well. Now, Now, something happens. If we lack any one of these three pieces, it's an incomplete picture of wisdom. You see, if we lack deep character, what happens if you have strict thinking and you have the know how is you become a crook. You do, right? Because if you don't have the character to ground you in doing what's right, you not know how to, how, to, how to bunk the system. Same thing as if you, if you have straight thinking, or if you lack straight thinking, you have the deep character and the know-how, but you don't have straight thinking, you become a simpleton. You, you're not necessarily a source of knowledge. And if you have the lack of execution, the ability to understand and have deep, deep character, what, what could happen is you become a critic. You stand on the outside and you criticize everybody else, but you yourself are not being a practitioner. And so we have to have all three of these pieces together, and when you have them synced up, what you have is a wise person who can skillfully navigate the complexities of life and add value to the people who are sharing life with them. So if this is what the, what the wise person does, the question again is, how do we become that kind of person? How do we become wise? And that's what we were talking about this week. Last week, Ash did a great job of kicking the series off, asking the question, what is wisdom? Now we're talking about how do we become wise? How do we increase in wisdom? And, and so what I wanna do is look at Proverbs 3. And as we go through Proverbs 3, I think there are, there are four things that I need to unpack that this proverb shows us about gaining wisdom. Those four things are this. It's the posture, the method, the accelerant, and the reward. So we're talking about the posture of getting wisdom, the method of getting wisdom, the accelerant of getting wisdom, and the reward of getting wisdom. Now the first step toward becoming a wise person is asking the question, how do I get wise? Now, when you ask this question, what you're, doing, you're acknowledging the fact that you, or no one else for that matter, is wise by default, right? Just in the same way that your refrigerator isn't full by default, we have to go about accumulating, stocking our lives with wisdom. And the way that this happens, the way we accumulate wisdom is over time. Now, this is why most people, when you're looking for good life advice, you're going to go to those gray-haired people, right? People who have some time under their belt, some wisdom, they have some experience, rather than going to an 18-year-old life coach who's marketing themselves on Instagram, right? You're, you're going to go to the, the wiser-looking person who has time under their belt. Otherwise, if you're going to that 18-year-old life coach, now, I'm not hoping to squash anybody's career if you're... 18 and you started a new business. Uh, but, but going to an 18-year-old is like going to a tire store to stock your fridge. You might find some peanuts, you might find a bottle of water, but you're not gonna find the sustenance, you're not gonna find the good stuff that you need. And I get it, you're probably looking at me, Sam, you're, you're, you're not much older than what you're criticizing here. Um, 30-something isn't much better, uh, but, but here's the deal. I, I am not supplying you this morning with my own wisdom. I'm not coming at you with, here's some tips and tricks that I think might work from my experience. Well, I'm coming to you with the wisdom of King Solomon, who in the Old Testament we know was the wisest person to ever walk the, the face of the earth to that day. 
and only replaced by Jesus who would come later on, right? So he, he is here writing to his older son, his, his young adult son, um, while Solomon is in his gray-haired era where he's had experience, he's had time, he's had the gift of God of wisdom to know what it means to be wise and how to instruct people in wisdom. And as Solomon is giving this instruction, telling his son, this is how you become wise, the first thing that he addresses is the posture. You see that in, in verse one of chapter three, he says, my son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. Now, what is Solomon saying here? He's saying to his son, listen, boy, and not in, not in a, a jerky kind of way. He's saying, listen, son, with, with the most sincere heart of affection toward him, you've got to be teachable. Right? The posture of gaining wisdom is to be teachable. It's to be humble. And, and without having this posture, you can get in the method. We can talk about the method of, of gaining wisdom. But if you do not have this posture, you will not become a wise person. I've got a great example of this. My mom is here this morning, so she can attest to this. My mom is a good piano player. She was the accompanist uh, in high school, elementary school, all this stuff. She was a good piano people, player, and, and, and people would always come up to me, and your mom's a great piano player. Certainly you've learned from her. She's taught you how to play piano, but the reality is I didn't want to listen to my mom. Didn't. And she tried to teach me, wasn't, she even got me some extra piano teachers, wasn't into it. I didn't want to learn. It's not that I wasn't capable of it. Eventually in college I would have regret that decision because as a music major I'd have to go through piano proficiencies. It would have been so much easier if I would have just listened to my mom when I was like eight years old, but instead I was unteachable. And, and in that my proficiency in piano got stunted. The same way as in wisdom. That if, if we're not going to be teachable, our gaining in wisdom will be stunted and so we see this precursor to gaining wisdom is to admit the fact that i i don't know it all now that's really hard to admit for me as a as an enneagram one somebody who's just certain that i always know the right way we have to admit i don't know it all and and in response to that have a willingness to learn a humility to learn now most people can admit that on a surface level Right? We can say, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know that much about our government. I don't know how a car works. I don't even know how magnets work. That's a mystery to me. And so we can admit, but but this humility that Solomon is talking about is a deep and profound type of humility. Right? It, it's a self-emptying kind of humility. And you see this if you look at uh, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 7. And, and what he's getting out here, he, he look, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Solomon is saying that the on-ramp to gaining wisdom is this radical humility. Now, in verse five and seven, they say, do not lean on your own understanding. Right? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Now, later on in the book of Proverbs, we, we gain some character profiles of, of the wise person compared to a foolish person. And what we see is the foolish person only cares about their opinion. 
The foolish person does what is right in their own eyes. And they live in this echo chamber where the only voice they hear, the only sort of instruction that they hear is their own voice. The fool is somebody who, who looks at a scenario and maybe even takes in some of the thoughts of other people, but just throws them away because I'm gonna do what's right in my own eyes. Now, if, if you're honest with yourself, a lot of the times, this is just how we operate, right? The person who I trust, the opinion that I trust the most is my own, right? We can probably attest to that. But wisdom starts with being the most skeptical of yourself. Wisdom starts with being most skeptical of your own take on the situation. It's a, it's a healthy level of self-doubt. It's a realization of I have limitations. I have blind spots. There are probably things that I don't know. Maybe I'm not seeing something clearly. Maybe there's somebody else who understands things better who can shed a little bit of light on this for me. And wisdom doesn't just listen to anyone. Because right? it's easy to listen to people who are already in cahoots with us. It's easy to listen to people who already agree with us. But wisdom is who, people who give their ears to people, to wise people with a proven track record. And this is why Solomon is such a great person to give our ear to. Right? Solomon, the second wisest person to ever live on the face of the earth, giving wisdom to his son. This is a great place for us to go. And as Solomon is encouraging his son to be humble and to remember his teaching, he, he's also saying that there's, another, there's a, another layer of this. There's a depth to this. Where he says humility is not just hearing or remembering the, teacher, uh, the teaching of someone else who's wise than they, but it's actually deferring to their wise counsel. It's to adopt their understanding as if it were your own. When he, he sees this in, in verse one, he says, do not let your, or, let your heart keep my commands what he's saying here in letting your heart keep my commands, he's saying to treasure, to treasure what I've taught you, to keep, to guard, and to protect. What I, he said, don't, don't just say, yeah, 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 I get it, I understand what you're telling me, and kind of go about your own way. What Solomon is telling his son is, grab a hold of the wisdom I'm giving you. Grab a hold of it and hold on tight. Act on it, follow through on it. See, this is what the mark of a humble posture is. It isn't just somebody who listens, but somebody who acts on wisdom when it's been giving. And if we don't have this humble posture, then it makes the method of getting wisdom irrelevant. So that's the first thing. Are you, are you a humble person? Are, are you willing to give your ear to somebody else's insight? Somebody who's got a proven track record of being wise? Now, if you do, then we could start talking about the method. The method, the, the way we become wise. Now, there's a process, there's a pathway to become anything. Whether you're a teacher, you're a doctor, whatever your vocation is, there is a pathway that probably includes some sort of classroom learning. You're gonna go sit down, you're gonna open up a textbook, you're gonna study, you're gonna learn the information, but then there's always some sort of practicum. Right, there's always some sort of practical learning piece where you're going to put into practice what you've learned. Now, wisdom, the, the pathway to wisdom doesn't necessarily have a classroom. In fact, if you understand wisdom, then you understand that, that well, life is the classroom. Like, we, we don't have 
class is on becoming wise here at Sacred City Church because classes like that are typically ineffective. But, but life is our school. Life is where we learn. Life is the classroom. And so in this sense, we can see that, that just going through the regular motions, going through the regular steps, the regular ebb and flow of life is the pathway in which God is making us wise people. Either, either we yield to God and his wisdom and him making us wise, or we resist it and we go on a pathway of folly toward destruction. Now there's a recurring theme that we see throughout the book of Proverbs. It's this idea that uh, do this and God will make your path straight. We actually see that in verse six. And when we look at this, this theme, this metaphor here, it's not really a hard metaphor to understand. What it's saying here is if, if you do certain things, it's going to lead to an experience of the good life. And so in this sense, your life is likened to a walking path. Now, I think this is a common metaphor, right? Life is a journey, life is a path, whatever. It's something that we, it's actually really profound. It's so simple, but really profound, and we can take advantage of it. Let me just unpack this here just for a minute. Because when we think of life as a a pathway, as as a a walking path, here's what's really being said. That like walking, developing wisdom is a slow process. Sometimes painfully slow right a painfully slow process and so we have to think if we want to become wise we have to think in terms of a crock pot not a microwave right this is a a long lifelong process because the reality is that given a long time domain you can go further walking than you can running there's a reason why on the Oregon trail they walked they didn't run they didn't want to sprint they walked there. In fact, if you play the game, I don't know if anybody's got an old Macintosh and still has a game. Maybe I'm dating myself a little bit. But if you, there's like three speeds you could go. You could walk slow. You could go at moderate pace. You could go at a grueling pace. If you go at a grueling pace, you're going to get sick and you're going to die. It's not going to work out for you, right? That's a lesson from Oregon Trail. <laughs> but that's how wisdom works. It's a slow process one foot in front of the other and again like walking the method of becoming wise is simple yet it's very effective right what is walking walking is putting one foot in front of the other and doing it over and over and over and over but here's the thing if you're walking you're going somewhere If you're walking, you're not standing still. It might look like it's slow, but listen, walking it's slow, but still effective. You're you're going somewhere. Your life is not at a standstill. Now, C.S. Lewis says that every day when you make little decisions, you are putting a a little mark on your soul. The the decisions that you make, those, those easy decisions or sometimes even monotonous decisions that we make day after day after day after day, that's what feels like one step after another is what is shaping you into a type of person. See, if you are making good decisions day after day after day after day, you're becoming wise. And if you're making foolish decisions day after day after day, you're becoming a fool. So it's in these small, simple decisions 
that our character is being formed, right? That's, that's a piece of becoming a wise person. Can you act on good day after day? Am I gonna be truthful or am I gonna lie? Am I gonna, am I gonna be a, a gossip or am I gonna be a, a respectful confidant? Am I gonna be resentful or am I going to be forgiven? These are the decisions that we make that are developing our character. But the key to developing this type of character that Proverbs is after is found right in verse three, where Solomon says, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now what he's talking about here, he's he's talking about whether or not we're going to be attached or detached from God. He's saying if, if you're gonna be attached, if you're gonna be detached from God, you're gonna probably go down the path of foolishness. You're gonna, you're gonna give way to evil decisions. You're gonna think not the way that God thinks in accordance with his wisdom. But if you are attached to God, if you're tethered to God, if you're rooted to him, we will trust him, we will acknowledge him, and we will fear him. And it's in these three things where God is developing wisdom. Now when he says in verse three, don't forsake steadfast love and faithfulness, this is not primarily a call to action. He's not saying, oh, go, just go and be steadfast. Go and be faithful. No, what this is, is a call to remember, to cling to the person and work of God, to remember his steadfast love, his faithfulness. The, the word that is used in this passage is hased. And over and over and over in the Old Testament, the word hased is pointing to God's steadfast love, to God's mercy, his faithfulness. And so what Solomon is saying, hey, hey, son, don't forsake God. Don't forget him. Don't brush him off. Instead, hold on tight. Bind him to your neck. Write his word on your heart. And when you allow, when you remember and you allow the steadfast love of God to, to in to have an impact with you day by day by day. That love becomes deeply embedded in you. It becomes the cornerstone of your life. We sang about it this morning, right? I wanna center my life on God. Now when you cherish God's love and his faithfulness, when you can go back throughout the whole narrative of scripture and, and trace every step of the way where God is faithful when we were unfaithful, where God was loving where we did nothing but despise him, the power of God's steadfast love is, and faithfulness is, is that little by little, you are transformed into a steadfast, loving, and faithful person as well. And, and what this looks like, if you're, if you're giving yourself to steadfastness, to faithfulness, what you're going to say to God is, God, I want to operate within your own bounds. I don't, I don't wanna go about life doing it my way. I wanna do it your way. Because I understand, God, you are always leading me down the path of life. You see, remember those two, those two pathways, right? Wisdom leads us to flourishing. Folly leads us to, to destruction. We're saying, God, we're trusting that you're going to lead us to flourishing. You're going to lead me to greener pastures. Now, what this is, like, this is what we would look at and say, this is what the fear of the Lord looks like. Now, Ash told, told us last week, fear of the Lord isn't like this terror 
It's not like, oh, I'm scared of God. He's gonna come down and crush me. No, fear of the Lord, the way the Bible talks about fear of the Lord, is a sense of weightiness, a sense of reverence, a sense of, of oh my gosh, God, how could, I, how could I think any different than the way you think? It's this giving ourselves to God, to let his voice be the most weighty voice in our life, to, to have the most input in our life. What Proverbs 9 tells us is that this fear of the Lord, right, the, the willingness to yield to God, is the beginning of wisdom. When you think about these two paths, right, one to flourishing, one to destruction, verse seven shows us why. It says the fear of the Lord puts us on the right path. It puts us on the, the path to flourishing. A fear of the Lord will block the path of folly for us. It'll, it'll keep us from our sinful desires, from giving way to foolishness and to evil. So the fear of the Lord turns us from the path of destruction and puts us on the path to flourishing, to giving us the good life. And when we see, when we're able to see the trajectory that God desires for us, when we see that he wants to lead us to those greener pastures, he wants to take us to the life abundant, that means that we can trust him. Even when it seems like the word, we're going in the wrong direction or it's a curvy road, it means that we can trust him. Verse five says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Now, this is one of the most famous passages of scripture. People have this on their coffee cups, you got it on bumper stickers, whatever. It's like, it's a popular thing. But, but the, the profound nature of this statement is something that we can't just brush by. What it's calling us to is complete trust in God. It isn't a partial trust. It's not a selective kind of trust where I'm gonna trust God all the way up to the point where it veers with my own thoughts. No, the type of trust that God is calling us to is a resolute and definitive trust that no matter what my initial um, intuitiveness or what my thoughts might be, I am going to yield my life toward God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Now this, again, radical humility. Right? This kind of trust, right? Because we're saying, God, I'm exclusively trusting you and I'm entirely trusting you. Verse six goes on and says, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Now, th- this is more than like a sporting, this is more than doing the Tim Tebow when you score a touchdown and you point up to God just to make sure that you're acknowledging God for whatever excess. There's more than that. Right? This idea of acknowledging God in all your ways is not just saying, hey God, tribute, you know, props to you, God. It's saying that in my whole life, in all of my endeavors, I am going to turn to you first, God. I'm gonna, I'm gonna listen to what you say. Whether it's with my finances, my relationships, my sexuality, my priorities, all of these things are under God's counsel. And so this means that, what, what are we gonna do? How are, how are we gonna find out what God has to say? Well, it, he's given us his word. Now the wisdom of God is not exhausted, right? We're talking in, in the Bible, but there's a lot of wisdom here that we could spend our entire life pouring over and not get to the bottom of it. I 
See, it means that if, if we want to acknowledge God in all our ways, we're gonna go to his word and see what he has to say about every part of our life. Now, there are gonna be some places where it's really specific. Like, this is how you honor God. This is how you acknowledge God. And in other scenarios, it's gonna be a little bit more abstract. There's not gonna be a definitive, Ash talked about choosing the right job. There's not gonna be a passage in scripture that says you need to become a lawyer. So in that scenario, what do we do? Well, we go and we unpack what, are, what, are the, the, what is the character of God? What are the principles that God lays out in scripture that could help guide our decision making? That a way that we could acknowledge God in all of our ways. Now, this is really tricky, honestly. It's really tricky, and so this is why community is so important to us. Because in community, we, people offer us more insight. People offer us better understanding. They can help us with our, our, our blind spots, and the community, again, speaks into these decisions that we're making so that we can acknowledge God in all our ways. And of course, we're leaning on the Holy Spirit to give us clarity. We're, we're taking it to God in prayer. God, give me direction, give me wisdom, give me insight to take the next best step. And when we have the, the Holy Spirit who's given us clarity, the Holy Spirit also gives us the power to step into it, to obey God in whatever he calls us to. And as we know God, as we, as we trust in the Lord with all our heart, as we lean out on our own understanding as we acknowledge him in all our ways, as we obey him with the fear of the Lord, what happens is our paths become straight. We become wise. Now, don't make a mistake about this. This doesn't mean that our life becomes easy. Just because the path is straight doesn't mean it's easy. It might be right uphill. The terrain of life is still going to be grueling, and as long as we live in a fallen world, it's gonna be that way. But if we trust God, if we acknowledge him, if we fear him, we have the ability to face this adversity. Because even if you do everything right, even if you do that, all of those things, there are still gonna be bad things that happen in life, and we can actually see this here in a second. But this is what I want you to see, that wisdom alleviates, not eliminates, the complexities and difficulties of life. Wisdom alleviates, not eliminates, the complexities and difficulty of life. Now while the, the method of accumulating wisdom is mostly a slow method, there is a fast track. There is something that happens that gives us wheels to cruise down the path of wisdom. And you can actually see it just loud and clear in verses 11 and 12. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Now wisdom what Solomon's saying here is the fast track, the accelerant of wisdom is the Lord's discipline. 
Now, you might get a bad taste in your mouth about discipline. Typically, when we talk about discipline, uh, we think of it in the, in the corrective narrative, right? Somebody, somebody did something wrong, and now they're getting a wooden spoon, right? Or, or if you're, think of it, the woodshed, going out to the woodshed, and you're going to get your, your tushy romped for a minute. And for some of us, th- this was a positive experience. We experienced discipline in a helpful way, and some of us maybe experienced discipline in a very severe and unhelpful way. And so before you pass the plate on discipline or even the idea, let me just unpack a little bit more what this means. Because there there is that corrective element, but there's also more to discipline than just the corrective. Now, as a dad, I'm constantly trying to help my kids grow up. I'm trying to give them, impart to them skills that they need in order to navigate life well. Now, one way that this happens is by putting kids in situations that stretch them beyond, beyond their own capabilities. Right? It's putting up the sort of a controlled environment where they can go in and make mistakes, they can take risks, make mistakes, where they're stretched. Maybe it's a, a task that's challenging, difficult, where they look at it, it's like, there's no way I can do it, and, and then it's just the dad saying, I believe in you, you can do it. Now, there was an example of this a couple weeks ago uh, we were with a family at a pool, and my middle son, Riken, um, he's not a fan of water that much, um, but he really, really wanted to go down the water slide. And, um, and so we were in the pool, and the whole time he's clinging to my neck, like he, he won't, doesn't even want to get like his neck in the water himself, he's just like trying to stay above water. And it's like, dude, if you want to go down the water slide, you've got to get your face wet. You've got you to go under and come back up. And so I'm sitting there in the shallow end. I was like, if this is, if this is what you want, then this is what's got to happen. So I'm in the shallow end with him, and I'm like giving him a couple of tests, run, taking him below the water and pulling him right back out. You doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing okay. All right, you can do it, buddy. Keep doing it. Right, I'm stretching his limits. Now, this is not torturing him. I don't, maybe it was a little bit. But I think in the, in the spirit of fatherly love, this was not torture. I was trying to give him the skills he needed to do what he wanted to accomplish. Now, this is how the discipline of the Lord works with us. See, God is constantly trying to expand us. He's constantly trying to expand us. And I think the, the piece that we miss is that when God is trying to expand us, he's not trying to make us autonomous from him where we can buckle down and do it ourselves but rely on him in a greater way and so God takes us into these seasons of life where it just seems man this is way too tough for me he gives us relationships that are just so trying like I don't know if I can be a friend with this person anymore God is stretching us and the way to get get wisdom the way to to expand to be be uh, successful in these areas is to learn how to trust in him even more to rely on God and so God puts us in these seasons where there's conflict, where we, it's like, we, I don't know if I can do this. And God places an urgency on it. Now, what's happening there? God is developing the skills, the character, the straight thinking that's needed in order for us to develop quickly. See, that's, that's part of the discipline of the Lord. But this also does include the corrective discipline, right? When we make missteps, when we, when we try and we fail. It's like when we get off the straight and narrow and we give no thought of God and we do what we want, when we go back to doing what's right in our own eyes. 
And when we do that, what you experience is that you're gonna find that, that going back down that path of foolishness is only gonna bring pain and difficulty and brokenness upon ourselves. And so it's God's grace, it's his steadfast love toward us that he doesn't just let the issue get swept under the rug. No, that he lovingly moves in and he addresses the issue with us. He takes us to the woodshed, not, not in some mean, abusive sort of way, but in a very kind and loving, gentle yet firm sort of way where he exposes our faults, our errors, our folly, he addresses them and he gives us the correction that's needed. Now the only way that discipline, the only way that God taking us to the woodshed is going to seem like a good thing is if you believe the gospel. Do you realize that? Other, if you don't believe the gospel, you, you talk about God taking me to the woodshed, God taking me into a season of discipline, God putting me on a hard scenario, well, that just seemed like God's being some sort of a tyrant. He, he's bossing you around, he's punishing you, he's pushing you to, to break you, not to bend you. That God's being cruel, he's putting you through the ringer, he's letting all your bad life decisions catch up with you. See, but if you believe the gospel, then you'll know that that's not the case at all. If you believe the gospel, you know that God is a heavenly father who loves you deeply. He's not condemning you in discipline. He's not even punishing you in discipline. Now listen, I feel like it's helpful to distinguish the difference between consequences and punishment, right? There's a difference between doing something bad and now I've got consequences to live with than punishment of being an extra dose of hardship, There's a difference between punishment and discipline. And when we look to the cross, we see that Jesus was punished for us. That Jesus was condemned in our place. Jesus was forsaken. Now all throughout the Gospels, when you're looking at what Jesus is doing, when he's talking to God, his heavenly father, he's always addressing God as his heavenly father. With the exception of the moment where he's on the cross. When the weight of the the world is falling down on Jesus' shoulders, when he's feeling the condemnation of God, he, he no longer addresses him as father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, Jesus was alienated. He was pushed out so that we could be brought in and adopted as God's own kids. And if you wanna look at the apex of God's faithfulness, his steadfast love, right there on the cross is where it is that those who were speaking against Jesus, those who were condemning Jesus, those who were responsible for putting Jesus on the cross were the ones that Jesus died for. That God's unconditional love sought them out. And anybody who would believe on Christ would be received as God's own. See, if you believe this, if you believe the gospel, you have been adopted as God's child and you can rejoice. You can rejoice in the woodshed because right there, that that woodshed, that, that season of discipline is proof that God loves you. Hebrews 12, 7 talks about this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, 
in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Do you see that? If you are not willing to be disciplined by God, if you're hoping that you're gonna go by your whole life not experience any sort of discipline from the Lord, you are an illegitimate child. He keeps going on. Besides this, if we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, that's talking about God, and live? For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he that is God disciplines us for our own good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, uh, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, this means that if you are a child of God, if you believe the gospel, the woodshed is a hard place, but it's also a sweet place. It's a place where God's gentle and strong hand is at work to shape and develop us because he loves us. And in doing this, what, what he's doing, in shaping it, disciplining us, and leading us down straighter paths, he's making us fully alive. Arrhenius was an old church father who said, the glory of God is man fully alive. You see, this is the blessing of wisdom. To have wisdom means you are fully alive. Hebrews 12 agrees with this. It says that God disciplines us so that we would share in his holiness. This is the resurrecting power of wisdom. He's taking fools and sinners and he is changing our trajectory. That he's setting things back as they ought to be. And you know what? This, this might not be happening instantaneously. But little by little, God is at work. And it yields the fruit of righteousness, of the, the good life. This is the blessing of wisdom. And you can see this sprinkled all throughout Proverbs uh, chapter three. You see it in verse two. He says, listen, if you're gonna be wise, you're gonna have length of days and years of life and peace will be added to you. In verse four, he says, you get wise so you'll find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. You look at verse eight. He says, wisdom will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. And then chapter, verses 13, blesses the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain, of, for the gain from wisdom is better than the gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. See, this is the gain we have in yielding to God. This is why we ought to trust and fear and acknowledge the Lord in all our ways. To, to, to be resolute in seeking wisdom to being open to the Lord's discipline, to giving time and space for God to help us to grow wise. So church, with our understanding of the gospel, knowing that we are sons and daughters of God, let us grab hold of wisdom. Let us embrace the woodshed. And let us come fully alive in Christ together. Father, we thank you
that you have made us sons and daughters. This is, the, this is the heart of the gospel. We look to the Lord's table, we see that Christ's body was broken, his blood was shed so that we could be restored, so that we could be made whole, that we could become fully alive. And so as we come to this table to this morning, Lord, would you help us to be more fully alive? Would you make us wise, not for the sake of wisdom, but for the sake of honoring you, of becoming holy and righteous people before you? For your glory, for our good, and for the good of the city. We ask this in Jesus' name.